1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prof. G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Before we start, just a heads up. As you might expect, there's some violence and adult language in here. So if you've got kids around, you may want to throw on some headphones first. Thanks. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ellie Honig, and this is Up Against the Mob. It was about 9 o'clock a.m., and already, the cooperating witness's mother-in-law was in the kitchen, frying up the eggplant. It was a Saturday morning, and I had driven out to a safe house to spend the day, along with an FBI special agent, meeting with one of our key cooperating witnesses, prepping him for a trial that started the next week. I won't say the cooperator's name here or his family members' names or the location of the safe house. I'll just say that it was in one of New York City's outer boroughs. Anyway, back to the eggplant. I don't remember what happened first, if I smelled it first or heard it sizzling, but immediately when the cooperator greeted us at the front door and let us in, I knew it was going to be good. She's excited to have company, he said, nodding towards his mother-in-law. She looked up from her work at the stove and announced to us with a broad smile, I'm making you a special lunch. Fine with me. The cooperator, the FBI agent, and I then went down to the basement of the safe house. It looked and felt like pretty much any suburban basement. Sparse furnishings, just a couch, a few chairs, a low coffee table. There was a bar, not stocked with anything at the time. And there was a TV mounted on the wall, nothing fancy. We spent the next three or so hours doing standard trial prep running through the cooperator's direct exam, contemplating what questions he'd be asked on cross. And finally, right around noon, we got the call. Lunch was ready. In an odd way, it made me feel like a kid again, getting called up from the basement for lunch. We walked upstairs and into a small feast. Bread, salad, some peppers, Italian meats, and the star of the show, the much-anticipated eggplant parm. And believe me when I tell you, that eggplant parm lived up to the hype and the expectation, and then some. Best I ever had, and I make it pretty well myself. The lunch went on, got to be 1 o'clock, 1.30. A little wine might have even come out at a certain point. It would have been rude not to have just one small glass. And before we knew it, it was the middle of the afternoon, and we were all stuffed and a little tired, let's say. We went back down the basement and tried to continue with our prep. I remember we decided to turn on the TV and put a college football game on. In a token nod to our trying to do some work, we agreed to keep the game on mute. But it was basically over by that point. We'd had a productive enough morning, but the afternoon was less productive. Here's the point. The relationship between law enforcement, FBI agents and prosecutors, and cooperating witnesses is supposed to be dry, robotic, mechanical, and often it is. You usually meet in a conference room in an office building. There's a lot of straightforward question and answer, going over documents, maybe listening to tapes. It's a professional relationship, first and foremost. But over time, especially as I deal with mob cooperators, guys who testified for me many times over the years, a personal element emerged too. How can it not? You spend hours together, days. Yes, business comes first. But inevitably, you're going to chat, as people do. How's the family? How's your son doing in high school? Did you see the game last night? Can you believe the Yankees blew it? And importantly, what are we eating? But there's a real dissonance to it sometimes. I'd just be casually chatting with this guy like he's any ordinary person. But then I'd remember. He was a made guy once. A real-world gangster. He did really bad things. In some instances, killed people. But we're all human. Maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome or some strange variant. But inevitably, there's a human connection to be made. Perhaps no cooperator made as big an impact on mafia history as Sammy the Bull Gravano. When he flipped back in 1991, it hit the mafia like a bomb. Nobody seemed less likely to flip than Sammy the Bull, the born and bred gangster, the remorseless killer, the underboss, to the legendary boss, John Gotti. Sammy posed a major threat to Gotti and to other mafia powerhouses. He was positioned to send a lot of powerful people to prison for a long time. And if anyone in the mob had a shot at Sammy, they'd have killed him in two seconds flat and been a hero for it. So the FBI knew they had to protect Sammy at all costs. He was the highest value, most endangered cooperator in many years and maybe ever. Sammy held the keys to the palace, the keys to bringing down John Gotti, finally, and they could not let anything go wrong. And that's when James Galliano got the call. Not a call so much as a tap on the shoulder. Jimmy G, as he's known, was a rookie FBI agent in 1991, just months out of the academy in Quantico, Virginia. He'd go on to have a legendary FBI career, including some remarkable work as an undercover agent. Jimmy G was and still is a big guy, tough, smart, no BS, but he was also raw back then as a rookie in 1991. So like every FBI agent, every Fed, he was stunned to learn that Sammy the Bull had flipped. And he was even more shocked to learn that he had drawn the assignment. Jimmy G had to protect Sammy the Bull at all costs to make sure he stayed alive and stayed safe and stayed sane. And in the process, as you'll see, Jimmy developed a human relationship and had some surreal moments with a one-time mob killer turned cooperating witness. This is the story of how James Galliano got the call to protect the most valuable asset the FBI had ever gained against the mafia. This is the story of babysitting Sammy the Bull. So just give us a sense, stepping back for a minute, how big was this case against... John Gotti, Sammy Gravano, and Frank Locascio. And, and tell us sort of, who were these guys within the Gambino family? It's impossible to
0: understate the larger-than-life figures these folks were. I mean, look, since then, we've had, you know, shows from the 1990s like The Sopranos with Tony Soprano, and people have kind of gotten a perspective of what a character John Gotti was. Did you ever meet John Gotti? Yeah. I knew John. Not only that, not only was he a flamboyant kind of cut against the grain for a mafia boss because most of them were small, you know, stooped over old men that wore cardigan sweaters and fedora hats and didn't want to be noticed. John Gotti was a new era gangster. He flouted it. He literally loved to go out in his, you know, $2,000 suits and his expensive, you know, alligator skin loafers and his perfectly coiffed hair and his straight blade razor shave every single day. He wanted to look the part. Not only that, he had an almost bulletproof aura about him And I don't mean bulletproof in the sense that he couldn't be killed I mean bulletproof in the sense that he couldn't seem to be convicted There were several federal and state cases That looked like they were open and shut cases That we came to learn later on Because John Gotti's folks got to a juror Or John Gotti's, his his just larger than life persona Made him a sympathetic figure to juries We had not been able to convict him on a number of startling crimes
2: And just so we're clear here This is John Gotti, the father. Later on, there's John Gotti, the the son, who I ended up prosecuting, not ultimately successfully, but just so we have the correct perspective here. Um, And they're very different people, as we can talk about. So take us to that day when you're in your office and you get this bombshell news about a major, major development on the case of United States versus John Gotti and Sammy Gravano et al you mean
0: november of 1991 where it started out as as you know a normal day would for me. I lived upstate New York at the time, and I would take, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles to get to the office because we didn't have the resources to to assign every agent, especially a rookie, uh, a a bureau car, an FBI take-home car. So I got into the office early that morning after about a a two-and-a-half-hour, almost three-hour commute. And uh, our boss at the time, who's a a legendary uh, FBI supervisory uh, special agent by the name of J. Bruce Mao, and you say J, well, it's J, period, because back in those days, he Came on in the late '60s. Everyone wanted to mirror what Jared Edgar Hoover did, so you took your first name and made it an initial, and used your middle name. So Jay Bruce Mao, who literally was the man, you know, behind um, the the successful prosecution of John Gotti from the FBI side, along with you know Special Agent George Gabriel, who was the case agent, called the entire squad into his office that morning and revealed the news that Salvatore. Sammy the Bull Gravano, who was, again, incarcerated, housed at the Metropolitan Correctional Center down in, uh, in lower Manhattan, had elected to turn state's evidence and was joining, as we say in the business, you'll be familiar with this, he was joining Team America.
2: Team USA. Yep. Always want to be on that team. So tell us what does that mean sort of generally when someone turns state's evidence, flips, cooperates, and how big was it that Sammy Gravano was now coming on board?
0: So you've worked with a few uh, cooperators in your day, just a couple, couple. right yep, right, yep. so we're familiar with the motivations and motivations are varied, you know some people do it, some people you know provide information to the government. We can't make cases without people on the street or people that are connected to some of these illegal enterprises um, or bad people without people. Giving us information. Some of those are just John Q. Public. They're just John Q. Citizen, people that want to do the right things. Others are motivated by financial uh, considerations. They get paid for information. And others are trying to work a sentence off, meaning they did something wrong. They got uh, indicted. They got prosecuted. They got convicted. And now they're trying to work off some sentencing. And others do it for revenge and retaliation. I think in Sammy's case, our understanding of the case was. That he had gotten some discovery, and for the listener, discovery is things the government is required to turn over related to a case to the defense so that they can properly prepare for their defense of what the allegations are. So there had been some tapes that, you know, the government, some, some wiretapping the government had done, and some of the transcripts made their way to Sammy's lawyer at the time, who was Gerald Chargale. John Gotti was represented at the time by Bruce Cutler, a famous mob attorney. And Sammy had gotten wind that on one of the tapes, John Gotti basically expressed his dissatisfaction with Sammy and was probably considering taking away his businesses, removing him from his his exalted position of underboss, and possibly even killed. And Sammy said, guess what? I'm not going to stick around for that. He made overtures to the government, and the next day we moved in, plucked him out of the MCC, and the rest is history.
2: So there's that element of betrayal right? Sammy Gravano, the loyal underboss, side by side with John Gotti for years. Now he learns that he's on the outs. And in my experience, there's two reasons guys flip. One of them, but I would say number two is betrayal. But number one is the one you hit on, which is saving your own hide, right? And Sammy Gravano at this point is charged with multiple murders, looking at life behind bars. So you know, Sammy, not me, that had to be a factor, too.
0: Well, so you're, you're, you're a counselor. You're speaking about the pragmatic aspect yes. of how these folks look at self-interest. it.
2: self-interest. Save your own skin,
0: 100%. Um, so in in this perspective, remember, the government back in the late 60s came up with a tool which you used very successfully in, in, in your job at the Department of Justice called RICO, the Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organizations Act. I think it was ratified in 1970. And we began using it, meaning we, the government, the United States, very successfully, especially in the late 70s, early 80s, because you got to remember that from a from the United States perspective, a lot of people didn't believe there was a mafia here until 1963, when Joseph Valachi first testified in front of Congress. This is my doom. This is the promise I'm breaking that I even if I talk, I should never talk about this. And I'm doing so and said, yeah, I'm a made member. Yes, I was involved in this ritual. Yes, it's this thing of ours, La Cosa Nostra. So you fast forward now to the 80s, you fast forward to the time of John Gotti and Frankie Lacasio and Sammy the Bull Gravano. Sammy looked at this situation and said, this is crazy. Now, no one up to that point at that level in the mafia... Had ever cooperated or turned states evidence. Sammy was at that point in time the highest ranking member to say this doesn't look good for me. I know they got me dead to rights on a number of murders and being part of a, of a of an enterprise, a criminal enterprise, and they've got a number of predicates that they can charge me with. I'm looking at 25 years to life if they convict me on the murders and on Rico. I'm going away for life. I'm going to help myself, and that's when he reached out to us.
2: So take us back to this day, all right, you're, you're a few months in, FBI, Bruce Mao, legendary agent, calls you all into the room, tells you all Sammy Gravano has flipped. First of all, what is the reaction like in this room full of FBI agents specializing in organized crime when you got that news?
0: Well, let me paint a picture for you because the location of the FBI at that time, it sent, the office has now since moved to Kew Gardens a number of years ago, but at the time was located at uh, 9525 Queens Boulevard in Regal Park, 11374. I still remember it, it was <laughs> the first business card I ever had. So you got to remember, it's a tiny cramped office. And back in those days, Ellie, if you'll recall, in government facilities, you could still smoke. And, and now wait a minute. That's a different area. Legal, legal things. So Bruce Mao was a, was a, just an aficionado of pipe smoking. So you walked into his office, there's all these agents. There was probably about nine or 10 of us crowded into his office, sitting on, you know, a couple of couches and a love seat and a couple of folding chairs. And we're all sitting there wondering why he's calling a squad meeting outside of the one we had monthly there, which was a regular uh, deal. So you're sitting there, you're cutting through all the haze of the smoke and Bruce was a very stoic man, you know him, so I think you know what I'm talking about, kind of impassive in, in, his, in his countenance and look, and he kind of he's chewing on his, the stem of his pipe, and he says, I have some news. And so everyone's sitting there, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe there's been a reassignment, people have got to focus on this, or he wants somebody to work on this, and, you know, what could possibly this be? And, and he goes, we have a new member of Team America. And uh, there were a couple people in the room, the senior agents that knew about this because they'd been responsible the night before under the cover of darkness from going to the Metropolitan Correctional Center and spiriting Sammy away out of the Department of Corrections who had him at the time. And he says, Sammy the Bull Gravano is now going to be working with us on the prosecution of John Gotti and Frankie Lacasio And, of course, there were some smiles and some high fives and some just people just could not believe it. This was an underboss of the largest crime family syndicate, the biggest, most powerful of five families in New York that now decided he was going to come work on Team America.
2: So you have this meeting, you hear this stunning news, and then you, Jim Galliano, got one more piece of information about what you would be doing.
0: So Bruce then looks and everybody scurries out of the room. They all have their different assignments, things that they were working on, whether it was, you know, continuing to transcribe the tapes. We had volumes and volumes and hours and hours of consensual monitorings that had to be transcribed. Some of it was in Italian that we had an Italian speaking agent on the squad that was handling. There were just a number of things that needed to be done. And he asked me and another agent who whose name just also happened to end in a vowel. I don't think this was purposeful, but his, his name was John Icavelli, and he asked us to behind. And he said, your assignment is going to be to go down to a safe house where we have moved Sammy to. And you guys are going to be housed with him and basically stay with him as his quote unquote, you know, this term handling agent, while we're going to be flying in prosecutors and flying in agents that are going to need to start. You know, we use the FD 302, which is a testimonial document in the FBI where they're starting to transcribe all of Sammy's cooperation. Because remember, he still had to plea to what he had done. So while we were excited and happy, there were still some things that had to be done, but my role was going to be to launch immediately down to this safe house and spend the next three or
2: four months living with him. So you're a brand new rookie. The most important potential cooperator in many years, maybe ever, has now flipped. You've got John Gotti Sr. in the crosshairs now. For go- you think this could be it. why? would they go with the rookie? Why the new kid? Well, again, I'd love to- I know you to, were part of a team, I, why I, the rookie?
0: I'd love to believe it had to do with the fact that Bruce Mao was just such an incredible judge of talent. But, <laughs> but I think that the, the more appropriate you know, review of his decision-making was, I literally was the newest guy in the squad and had the least amount of responsibility. and was like, hey, kid, here's your job. Don't screw it up. Another one of those things. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your eyes and ears open. But this will be a great tutorial for you on learning not just about the game- family,
2: but also about the mob in total. So what is this safe house? And I know there's safe houses all around the country, which we can't give the specific addresses of, but tell us about this safe house where you watched, babysat, supervised Sammy Gravano.
0: So the generic, you know, description or definition of a safe house is, as you're well familiar with having visited a few in your career, is any place that the FBI or law enforcement can provide security for somebody whose life may be threatened because of the fact that they're going to be cooperating in a federal prosecution. So it could be everything from a hotel room to a, a rented house to a you know undisclosed location in, you know, wherever you could possibly fathom it, where it would be nondescript and where people would not think to look for somebody that is wanted. And again, when you cooperate against the mob, you have signed your death warrant. So Samuel. Gravano knew that by doing this, there were going to be people that are going to want to come after him. The one that we used was a little unique, and I can speak about it now because obviously at the time it was kept under wraps, but it's been talked about in a number of stories in different places. But there was a location down at the FBI Academy that I had just recently, you know, graduated from at the end of May in 1991, and this is only a few months later in November. There was a location that the FBI Academy housed called the Defectors Suite. And a defector back in those days, you got to remember, this is, you know, this is right after, you know, the Cold War had just ended, right? I mean, you know, East Germany and West Germany had just reunited and the Soviet Union was crumbling. This is right after the Cold War had basically come to an end. The United States was victorious, but we had a suite down there where Russian defectors, you know, KGB men, double agents, things like that, had been placed for their safekeeping while they were debriefed. And that was the location that they chose to keep Sammy safe.
2: The defector's suite the defectors suite. That's interesting because I would, defectors is sort of another way to talk about cooperators. But tell us a little bit about that because an important part of mob culture is this idea of you don't talk. You don't, I, I hate to use this word, but they do. You don't rat, you don't snitch. And a lot of the cases I was involved in, murder cases that I was involved in prosecuting involved killing someone because they were or were suspected of cooperating. So how much danger exactly would Sammy Gravano have been in at that moment?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. They're, they're, you know, you're careful to use the term, you know, honor among thieves because really where is the honor? I mean, but the mob and one of the reasons why it was so super successful and while to a certain extent it's remained successful is that it did have a certain sense of criminal enterprise rules and regulations. You know, one of them was— You don't cooperate. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the code of Omerta in Italian, which means, you know, you don't talk about this anywhere else. You know, La Cosa Nostra, this term for the mob, which means this thing of ours, not this thing of yours or this thing of other people's, but this thing of ours. You keep it sacred. You never, ever, ever rat on friends and associates within this criminal organization. You don't ever turn state's evidence. In fact, you will betray friends were not in the mob and your own family members before you would ever not follow an order that was issued to you by a superior or do anything to betray the mob. You would always pick the mob first. This was huge now there was a concern on a number of levels because sammy had a wife and two kids that lived out on staten island where he lived and the concern was would anything happen to them sammy was pretty convinced that no he was going to separate himself from his family he was not speaking to his wife anymore or his kids and the mob while there was still some type of and i use the term honor in quotation marks would not go after his family but would look for him so concern on his part for him Not a concern for his family.
2: Right. So he's essentially dead man walking if he's seen, but he still believes in, and it played out, nobody's going to go after the family, right? That's, in my experience, that's a mob rule. And yes, these are all criminals, but they do have certain rules that held in this case for Sammy.
0: They did hold. And I think that was, that was a big ace in our pocket.
2: So let's go down to the defectors suite down in Quantico on, uh, on FBI property. Who gets there first? You and John, the other agent, or or Sammy? Is he there when you get there? Are you there first?
0: Yeah, so he had gotten there first because they had flown him in. So the FBI's hostage rescue team, which is our, you know— Super elite paramilitary organization. It's like the, the the SWAT team of all SWAT teams. It's the, the civilian uh, version of like SEAL Team Six or the Army Rangers or Marine, you know, Force Recon. That kind of stuff. They actually flew in, picked up Sammy, and then brought him back down. Their house, their compound, is at Quantico, at the FBI uh, Academy, which is again housed on Marine Corps property. And they brought him down there and then secured him in this suite. And then the other agent and myself, we drove down together anticipating that we were going to be there for the next few months.
2: The other agent, John Acavelli. Yes. Is he giving you the sort of, here's the rules of the road, right? He's a veteran agent. You're the rookie. What did he tell you before you went in to meet with Sammy Gravano to watch Sammy Gravano about how this was going to work? What were the ground rules? Well,
0: it was again, it was another you know fortuitous turn of events because I genuinely like John. John was my training agent, and you know when you come into the FBI, um, you spend a year or two on what we call probation, which means you've got to learn a number of different things, you've got to fulfill a number of different tasks, you've got to you've got to get your Boy Scout merit badges, you've got to check this box, this box, and this box. John was a person responsible for making sure that i met muster and did all those things so i was really close to john um and i think john from his experience he was a bronx kid um Obviously, he was much more knowledgeable about the mob and about he'd been working it longer. He was there in New York working the mob when you know the spree of, of mob hits was paralyzing the city, and th- there were different wars that were going on where mob families either internecine or different mob families were killing each other. John just told me, you know, don't do anything stupid. You know, keep your wits about you. Recognize that this guy is a, he's a stone cold killer. He's done that. Now look, you know, you work with a cooperator like this, you have to establish a certain a certain level of trust. You, you grow to like people in those circumstances because you realize they're doing something that's dangerous to them and that's helping you get the bigger fish. But at the same token, don't drop your guard. And he reiterated Bruce Mau's very sage advice, keep your mouth shut and use your eyes and ears much more than you use your mouth.
2: Take us now to your first time actually physically meeting Sammy Gravano. Well,
0: I had seen the arrest photos from the December of 1990 arrest, and obviously I'd become such a a uh, student of La Cosa Nostra and the Mob. I mean, I, I felt like I was living a, a dream life that, you know, here's a a kid, you know, of of Sicilian descent who's, you know, who didn't really live in New York or spend any time in New York until he gets to this point in his professional career where if he could have selected where to go, he ended up going exactly where he wanted to go to the squad that he wanted to go to. And then it's just unbelievable Unbelievable opportunity to sit there, eat dinner with, converse with, and learn from an underboss of the biggest crime syndicate in the country. And it was it was a blessing. Now, when I walked in and saw him, I expected him to be like Travis Tritt says, 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And I was kind of surprised at his stature. He was a very short guy. I'm, I'm 6'3", almost 6'4". So when I walked in, I was kind of taken aback by how short he was. But no doubt you looked at him, and he was built like the proverbial, the, the, the spark plug, the, the fire hydrant. I mean, just just compact, muscular, just turned 40, I believe. And at that time, Ellie, as a 26-year-old, 40 was ancient. That's, that's my father's <laughs> oh, age. Right. And now 40 is in the rearview mirror for me. So looking at him, I was just – I was taken back by how tough he looked how short he was, and how serious he was. I mean, he looked very serious when I first met him. Under
2: under circumstances, you understood why. Sure. So, tell us about if you remember your first exchange with Sammy. Who said, did, what did you say to him? What did he say to you? How are you sort of setting the boundaries here?
0: Well, I think, you know, he knew John Icavel, you know, because, you know, Sammy's Actual handling agents, the, pe- the the guys that actually worked, you know, the Gambino mob from the Staten Island perspective and the, the Staten Island, the borough where, where Sammy was located, were two guys— Again, two more Italians. I don't know how we had so many Italians in the squad, but that's the way it worked out. Frankie Spiro and Matty Tricorico. And these were two literal Hoover-era agents. I mean, when we did surveillances and we were taught, you know, in the 90s and in the, in the late 80s, you know, to dress down, to blend in, these were guys that still wore, you know, you'd almost think a fedora, but, you know, coat and tie, tie never loosened, jacket never off, not even in the office, just the consummate, you know, G-man that you would expect. Well, John, through them, had also met Sammy before. And John was also part of the team that, that basically spirited him out of the MCC. So Sammy knew him. So when he saw me, it's just like, well, who's this lunkhead right here? Who's with you, John? And John explained who I was. And Sammy just shook his head and said, you know, another Italian coming after me. Look at this.
2: It took him that long to realize you were Italian? <laughs> one, one glance? <laughs>
0: exactly. Well, and hearing my last name, I think, too, you know, when you hear that last name, you're like, yeah, he's probably not an Irish guy.
2: Right. So so he comes right out of the gate sort of throwing— Throwing a little bit of attitude at you.
0: Comes right out of the gate swinging, and that was one of the things. The guy had a rapier-like wit. He was really sharp with a quip. He could turn a phrase. And again, you're talking about somebody that didn't even finish high school, and yet to rise to the level that he did, the underboss, the number two, and like I said, the largest uh, crime syndicate of the five families in New York City, a very powerful, powerful criminal enterprise, and you go— He's not stupid. There's a lot to be said for street smarts. And there's a lot to be said for, you know, he didn't have a formal education, but the streets taught him well.
2: Yeah. I I used to have certain cooperators or even mob defendants. And sometimes I would look at them and think— that guy would have been successful in banking, in the law, in anything else. And others, I think, that guy would have failed out
0: of anything else. 100%. You you look at guys like that, and I've thought about this many times over the years, and you say, gosh, if you'd have just put that energy, that effort, that passion, that wherewithal, those street smarts into something legitimate, you'd have been Bill
2: Gates. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> Bill Gates. Thinking of Sammy in charge of a Microsoft, software company. Right. <laughs> um, so, so how long... Did you spend with Sammy Gravano? And tell us a little bit about just the physical living arrangements. Were you were you living there? Were you coming at nine and leaving at five? How did this work?
0: No, this was a twenty four seven job, so there was no time off on weekends. It was like being in a combat zone, and I don't mean to say that lightly. Having spent time in a combat zone, I know that there there are no days off. There's no you don't take Sundays off to you know read the newspaper and, and and go to church services. You're you're in a heightened state of awareness all the time, and there are jobs and responsibilities. It was the same thing here, so. 24-7 job. It was my t- tenure down there approached probably close to four months. I came back on a couple of weekends. They rotated me out just to give me a break so I could get home and see my little one and and uh, take care of some things like paying the bills because you, you didn't have bill pay online back in those days, Ellie, as you know. <laughs> Everything had to be a snail mail and a stamp on it to make sure that they didn't cut the electricity off at my house. But I remember walking in, And looking at the place, it was a typical FBI conference room. It was extended. There was a circular table in the middle with a lot of chairs where we spent hours upon hours upon hours debriefing him. And then there were two bedrooms on either side. And then everything was surrounded by a hallway where the hostage rescue team, the armed guys, because remember in this instance— I was not allowed to be armed, so I couldn't go in there and wear, you know, there was no taser on my belt. There was no set of handcuffs. There was no sidearm. All that stuff had to be checked in at the FBI Academy. Nothing like that could be inside the space. So large conference room, large rectangle conference room, one bedroom on one end, one bedroom on the other. My bedroom was on one end. Sammy's was on the other. Sammy's could be locked from the outside. Mine could be locked from the inside.
2: Big difference. Big difference. So so I'm basically picturing like a government issue version of sort of like the Radisson suites or something like that.
0: That is a perfect description, maybe a Holiday Inn Express, if you will, <laughs> that, uh, you know, you got that extra extended suite, nothing fancy. There was a color TV there. There was a bookshelf there. There was a couple of, you know, comfortable chairs, but everything there was on a government budget. So this was not, you know, this was not high end. It was standard equipment, government issue stuff.
2: And you said you were not armed. Not armed. Not why is once, that?
0: Once I got to Quantico, I had to check in my sidearm, and there was a reason for that. It's the same thing where if you're if you're a a corrections officer on Rikers Island, or you're with the Bureau of Prisons on the federal side, you never are armed in and amongst the inmates. why is that? Well, first of all, they outnumber you. There's two hundred of them for every five of us. They outnumber you. And second of all, God forbid you lose control of that sidearm, you've now armed somebody that has nothing to lose. So the issue was, why would you be armed in a position where, God forbid, it was taken off of you or, God forbid, you didn't secure it properly, you've now put a weapon in the hands of somebody that shouldn't have it.
2: And let's remember, Sammy was at the time charged with multiple murders, later confessed to a total of 19. 19 murders. So you have a guy who is, as they say in the streets, a capable Guy. I think that's a perfect description.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof G podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G-Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G-Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You have a lot of time here with Sammy. you, you your roommates, babysitting, whichever term you want to use, for four months with this guy. How did you pass the time and how did you build rapport with him? Well, you know, and this is
0: sometimes I get into I get into arguments with some of my um, my students at St. John's when I teach an organizational leadership class um, in the past. And you talk about leadership, and when we think of leaders, we think of good people, right? That's that's a leader. And when you think of a good person, they're selfless. They're you know they've got character. They've got competence they've got charisma the three c's okay well you take out the character piece of that and you look at the competence and the charisma and that was sammy to a t look you know adolf hitler saddam hussein awful people but knew how to mobilize the masses sammy did incalculably grotesquely wrong things right killed people, including being involved in his brother-in-law's death, his brother-in-law's death. So when you think about that, his wife's brother, you know, so what more can you say about that? But at the same time, he was feared, he was respected, and he was liked. Now, you take out the fear and the respect part initially early on. I could understand why he was considered likable. Sitting across the table, yeah, you, and I, that? you and I know each other a long time. We're easy. It's comfortable having a conversation. Very quickly with Sammy with the quips, with the just a, a, a memory like a just a picture-perfect memory that could recall details of this, that, and the other, and Sammy was a classic needler. He'd find the thing about you and, like, make fun of it, and, you okay, know— and so, just, well i well, was how the, did he go at you? I was the kid, and he knew I'd been, a, you know, in the Army, and I was an Army Ranger, and I had a, I had a goal when I came to the Bureau. I desperately wanted to become— at some point in time, I remember the FBI's hostage rescue team. Right. Well, they were the ones, it was the good cop, bad cop routine. Those of us closest to Sammy could play the good cop. We're the case squad. We're here to make your life comfortable. We're going to ask, but we don't know if hire is going to allow that, wink, wink. That's the bad cops out there. They're the tough guys that strip search you. They're the tough guys that toss your room every day to make sure that you're not, you know, holding on to contraband. They're the ones whose job is to be— pure professionals, our job is to build rapport and relationship with you. So it was different. So that's what I'm talking about when I say we became, you know, he looked at me kind of as, uh, you know, he's like, oh, well, you know, you want to be a tough guy and everything. You want to go do that. Why would you want to do that? Those guys are, those guys are jerks. You know, those guys, why would you want to be that? You're becoming a robot, a a RoboCop or whatever. Don't do that. This is where you should stay.
2: So it's interesting to me, that Sammy Gravano, this savvy street operator, almost a prodigy, he rose up through the mob so fast, meets you and pretty quickly identifies where's that vulnerability? Where's that thing he wants? Where's that thing I can needle him on? Well, remember, I mean, again,
0: Elliot goes back to the thing about leaders, even bad leaders. They have traits about them that make them able to assemble power. And that's really what it's about. And what is one of those things? It's knowing the person that you're negotiating with or dealing with. And that's Sammy's thing. So you had to keep that into perspective. I had to keep in perspective that he's not like me and you. We're not going to have that type of collegial, friendly, loyal bond forever. However, this is a utilitarian relationship. We need something from you. You're looking for something from us. We're not promising you it, but we're looking to help you at the end if you can help us. And as
2: long as those boundaries and ground rules are laid out, let's make the time we're spending together enjoyable. Ah. So speaking of that, you got 24 hours a day in this Defector Suite with Sammy, and there's only so much time you can be sort of debriefing, as we say, meaning interviewing and that kind of thing. What on earth do you do? What do you do to keep from going nuts? What do you do to pass the time with you and Sammy and John?
0: Well, you know, as being, you know, being a writer, as we, we both do, write, do a lot of writing, that you can only stay so sharp throughout so much of the day. And so really the duty day for debriefings was between the hours of eight and five, okay? That was, you know, prosecutors would fly in. for. Remember, this case was was prosecuted in the Eastern District of New York, in Brooklyn. So prosecutors from the Eastern District would come in, prosecutors from the Southern District of New York that had parallel cases or tangential cases would come in to, to debrief. And then we had an agent, like at first it was John, as we discussed earlier, and then it became other agents from my squad that would travel down to be involved in the transcription of the FD-302s from the debriefings. So Sammy's job was basically to tell the truth. Tell us what you did. All right. We need, if you're going to make a global plea here, it's going to be, you're going to tell us what you did in the seventh grade when Mrs. McGillicuddy wasn't looking and you took that pack of gum from Bobby Brown. We're going to find out about that today. You're going to tell us everything. So that was between eight and five. Early in the morning now, Sammy was a huge fitness buff at that time. You know, we didn't have CrossFit in those days. <laughs> there, was, there was no workout of the day. What's the wad? Let me go online and find it. There was none of that. So Every morning we would get up and HRT would put us into a vehicle. You know, Sammy would not be, he would be blindfolded, would not be able to see where we were driving to. We would go to some location in or around Quantico where there was safety on a, on a tank trail and there was security on it, different points there, and then a trail vehicle and a lead vehicle. And then a couple of us, usually the agents that were down there with him and maybe one or two guys on HRT that would be out on foot with us, we would run four or five miles every morning. At what time? 4.30 because the whole premise behind this was it all had to happen before the sun came up and before there was anybody else out there. So we'd get back to the room around 5.30, we'd shower, we'd make some breakfast in the kitchen, we'd sit down, we'd put on the news. I mean, this is back in the days when cable was still a relatively, a relatively, you know, wonderfully, you know, 21st century in our mind convenience, you know, turn on, you know, ABC or CBS or NBC and watch the news that morning, eat our breakfast, and then await the first wave of folks that were
2: going to come in for the debriefs. Okay. So I I just want to set the scene here. So four 30 in the morning, you're getting up, you're running four or five miles with Security in front of you, security behind you. FBI agents. All up. sounds like a, a real nice, relaxing, cleansing little run in the morning. Well,
0: again, it was part of that, and um, you know, anybody that's done this as you have, it was part of that establishing of rapport and breaking down of barriers. And working out with him was something to him that was important. First of all, you're tough enough to keep up with me, and then second of all, you know, you're doing chit chat along the run. We weren't running. We weren't running five thirty miles at the time, but we were jogging and being able to have a conversation while we were on that tank trail and it did form a type of bond then we'd come back and shower whatever again the purpose behind this was the people closest to him from the k squad were to break down those barriers with him and establish rapport hrt was the bad guys they were supposed to be the you know hey guy here are the rules you're going to comport with those rules or there'll be severe consequences so it worked out nicely in that arrangement so you're the good cop well, I'd like to believe that we were the ones that uh, he looked more fondly on than he did on my the team that I joined later on, on the HRT guys, who he was not fond of.
2: So you guys would—you and Sammy would run together on the path, and I understand you'd also throw a couple punches with him here and there.
0: Well, then it started, and again, like I said, I don't want to say that I invented CrossFit, but, you know, as I think <laughs> about it now, the two of us would just come up with different games. One of the games we did was I had a deck of cards— And sometimes we would play cards. He loved spades. And spades is a game that I learned in the military. So I played spades. It's the only card game I know. I'm not even good at 21 because it requires math, and that was never never something I was good at. But I had a deck of cards, and we would play deck of cards push-ups, which means TV's on in the background. We could have a movie on. The VCR was humming or the Betamax, whatever the outdated technology we used was to to watch movies. And then we would just both get down in the push-up position, turn over a card, and do that many amount of push-ups and do it through the entire deck. So, again, it was another bonding thing. Sammy was— he was a proverbial real deal in the sense of he wasn't the puffed up tough guy. Sammy worked out at Gleason's gym, again, as a boxer. I mean, he was 40 years old at the time. You know, there was no, you know, he wasn't using, you know, drugs at that time or anything, steroids. He just was a workout fanatic. So the two of us would push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, anything we could do in that Radisson suite that you just described.
2: So tell us about these, and I don't know if, I, if I'll call them heavyweight bouts, but tell us about these— Bouts. They were not available on pay-per-view, but it was Galliano v-, v Gravano. Well, so this
0: was this was one of those kind of things we're sitting around one night for you know having dinner and that was another thing. I had to go out and do all the shopping. Now I was on a budget, you know, your tax dollars were hard at work and I would have to go out and I would have to find the items that he wanted to cook, whether it was marinara or whether it was, you know, whatever it was. I mean brock la rabe, uh, you know, look, I, I wasn't good at making things like brijol or chicken piccata, or things like that, but I would go out and try to find the ingredients and then we would cook together. And generally, John was a really good cook. You know, John, the other handling agent that was down there with me, was a really good cook, and he could make an Italian spread, and we're talking about it, and Sammy says, you know, the one thing I miss, other than my freedom, and he stopped (laughs) and had that pause right there waiting for, you know, a couple of chuckles, the one thing I really miss is the opportunity to box. I I like to throw my hands and I don't get a chance to. And I was sitting there and saying, you know, it's a shame, because, you know, just spitting distance from here is the FBI Academy gym that shoot six months ago, you know, I, you have to go through boxing, and you have to go through defensive tactics. I mean, it's part of the FBI Academy physical training protocol. And I said, you know, they've got, they've got, uh, they've got sparring gloves down there. And uh, and he goes, you think there'd be any way? I said, first of all, you're never. They're never going to allow you to leave this room while you're here, other than to go run. So the uh, the chance of you going to the gym is no zilch nada not happening however i could go get a couple of those gloves a couple pairs of them there's a px here the marine corps px where i could go buy a couple of mouthpieces which we could just boil on the stove and fit them for ourselves and then we'll move the conference table over push all this overstuffed chairs aside and we got a little ring in here and he goes i love it bo i love it i'm like bo who's bo well, Bo was the term that he used for us; those of us close to him. He would call us Bo. It was kind of a term of endearment. That's a Brooklyn term, right? I guess it has to be. Look, I grew up in Decatur, Georgia. I've never heard it, <laughs> but I
2: had guys use that phrase Did too. And you? I, I said, "What is this
0: Bo?" Like, yeah, I've heard a lot of Bo. I'm not beau? your Bo, but yeah. that's. But then when you came to understand that it wasn't, um, yeah, you know, it wasn't a pejorative. It was it was a term of endearment. and okay. that's what he'd use. So you and Sammy boxed, headgear, yes. gloves, everything. Uh, so, a,
2: a once, a bunch of times.
0: So a number of times we moved all the the furniture out the two of us would get going we i had my 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 watch which was a timex i'd sit on the side and we say okay we'll go three rounds now here's here's what happens when you have two (laughs) testosterone laden guys and you throw them into a ring like this where i'm thinking to myself okay sammy uh, how do you want to do this he goes well nothing to the face okay we won't do to the face we'll just do body shots how hard do you want to go well let's just go 50 percent. we did that for a couple minutes and we're like let's go 60 percent." how do you make that differentiation between 50 Let's go seventy-five. You know what? Let's let's go fifty percent to the face. The first time you get hit on your button, and I got an Italian nose, so it's a, my probiscus is kind
2: of formidable. When you get hit on the
0: button, fifty percent goes right out the window.
2: <laughs> Couple other details, and then I want to get into big big picture stuff here. So you mentioned the VCR, the beta. So you'd sit there with Sammy the Bull and just pop in a movie. Yeah, so this is, you know, you got to remember this is the this is the age of when
0: blockbuster was king. Have you seen a blockbuster lately? No,
2: they're, they're yeah, gone. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, Hollywood shame. Videos? No. They don't exist anymore. It's a shame. So, this was back in the era when on every street corner if there wasn't a blockbuster, there was a mom and pop video st- uh, tape store. So, we had a VCR and uh, you know, in the evenings I mean to to pass the time. Again, you didn't have 600 network channels. There was no dish TV back then. So, you know, some of, the, some of the interesting things we watch, we watched The Godfather. We watched The Godfather <laughs> you Part Two. sat there two. with Sammy Gravano and watched... Absolutely. Was he giving
2: you running commentary on it? He, he
0: knew as many quotes from it as I did. He could, <laughs> he could quote it better than I could. State your name, please.
1: Frank Bentonjali.
0: And where were you born? Puerto Rico. It's
1: outside of Palermo.
2: And where do you live now?
1: I live uh, in an army barracks with the FBI guy. <laughs>
2: But did he ever say, no, no, that part's not, that's not accurate. It would never go down that way.
0: No, I think that they were, I mean, because I think on some of the tapes, some of the wiretapped, you know, conversations, they talked about the Godfather. They were Gotti, Gravano, Lacasio. They were all enamored with this glamorous portrayal of the mob, you know. And remember, the Godfather's set back in the 50s and the 60s. So, you know, the first Godfather. So they were enamored with it. But I would go pick up, you know, current movies. I mean, one of the ones that comes to my mind was Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze in Point, Point Break. break. <laughs> yes. And, and, and watching that with him with, you know, one of them being an FBI right, agent right. and how, you know, how weird the juxtaposition of sitting there with the current underboss of the Gambino crime family and watching this story about a, you know, a, an FBI agent who's infiltrating a, a rookie, a, FBI agent. Agent. a
2: rookie. Just like you. I am an FBI agent. I know, man. Isn't it wild? Another thing that's very important to me, very important to mobsters, is the food. Who was the chef what kind of things would you would you all dine on
0: so really i mean to give credit where credit is due i mean john icavelli who again was my training agent and kind of my my guide through this whole process cuz john was older than me and just you know knew the business the mob business better knew new york and john was a john was a heck of a cook back in those days Sammy did pitch in on some of those weekend meals in making the meatballs. I mean, I have vivid memories of sitting there. I'm sitting up on the counter, John's stirring the sauce, and Sammy's, you know, taking the breadcrumbs and the meat and rolling it into balls and just thinking, how freaking surreal is this? Like, I'm a couple months out of the academy. You know, I just read Donnie
2: Brasco, and here I am now, you know, sitting with an underboss of the Gambino family. Utterly surreal. So that—and that brings me to my big picture question, because— I think we both know, having spent a lot of time with cooperating witnesses, former mobsters, killers in a lot of of instances, that there's a fine line between building rapport, building relationship, building trust on the one hand. And as I used to instruct our newer prosecutors when I taught on this, I said, here's a commandment. You may not fall in love with your cooperator. And I don't mean that in the romantic way, but there's a fine line between we're building trust on the one hand – But this is, we're not friends, ultimately. On the other hand, we can't become friends. This is business, not personal. So how would you sort of negotiate that in your mind and in your your relationship with Sammy Gravano?
0: The number one way that you can get in trouble in law enforcement is to, you know, fall in love or have a relationship with a cooperating witness or an informant. Um, and, and as an undercover agent too, I mean, same thing with a target of your investigation to fall in love or to have some type of improper relationship. You have to understand what the relationship is built on. First of all, on the undercover side, it's built on a lie. It's you're, 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 you're pretending to be somebody. And on the working with a cooperator like Sammy, you have to keep in perspective what your job is and you have to keep in perspective what his job is his job as you pointed out at the top of this is to cut the best deal possible your job is to make sure that he's comfortable that he's taken care of and safe his family's comfortable taking care of and safe at the same token the job one in this whole thing was to was to finally take John Gotti down a man who had gotten away with so many things and had
2: done it successfully and this was this was the way to do it yeah so let's jump to that Ultimately, big picture goal here is you are building the foundation to get Sammy Gravano ready to walk into federal court under the brightest possible media glare and under what will be intense cross-examination from very skilled defense lawyers for John Gotti and give testimony aimed at the head, of the most powerful gangster really this city has seen in many decades and probably ever. So take us ahead to that trial. Right, Sammy ends up testifying. And tell us how that trial went down and sort of how that hit the world, the mob world and, and the larger world in general, when Sammy took the stand and testified against John Gotti at that trial.
0: Well, again, to, to set the scene and now you're going back, and this is this is almost thirty years ago, almost three decades ago. And you know, things didn't go viral in those days. But you know, things spread by word of mouth. They spread by reading the newspapers, the New York tabloids, whether it was the Post or Long Island Newsday or the Daily News, the New York Times covered these things. Um, There was a fascination with it because John John Gotti was a ubiquitous. I mean, that's the only way to describe him. I mean, he was known everywhere. And in this instance, when this trial was ramping up because he had successfully beaten the government at the state and federal level a number of times. Teflon Don, right? Teflon Don. It was it was it was it was must- see TV, if you will. Once again, John Gotti faces the prospect
1: of life in prison. With prior felony convictions for attempted manslaughter and truck hijacking, he could face a stiff prison term as a persistent felon if convicted a third time.
0: So how did we feel about Sammy? Did I have any concern? No, I knew that Sammy was looking forward to this showdown as much as he would have been a boxing match or a real street brawl. He was looking forward to matching wits with some of the best attorneys that money could buy.
2: Yep. And, and so the ultimate outcome was, finally, they got the big one, right? John Gotti was convicted, and Sammy was the star trial witness, and John Gotti never walked a free man again.
1: This time, the charges stick, and the Teflon Don may now spend the rest of his life in prison. John Gotti, guilty on all counts.
0: Would John Gotti have beaten the case without Sammy's testimony? It's hard to say. I doubt it, Ellie, only because this was a, this was a wire case, as you're familiar with. So on his, you know, in his own words, on the tapes, it's John Gotti, you know, uh, directing hits to happen and talking about ill-gotten gains. But did Sammy ensure it? Absolutely. And so John Gotti gets convicted. Obviously, Sammy pleads later to the, to the 19 murders. Frankie Lacascio gets convicted. They both get convicted of murder and racketeering and tax evasion and all those things. John Gotti goes to jail in a federal pen in Marion, Illinois, where he languishes until 2002 when he passes away, I think due to throat cancer. Right,
2: right. And so Sammy Gravano was a very large part of that. Now, you mentioned the 19 murders. And ultimately, when Sammy got sentenced, he got five years. And now, of course, he's getting a lot of credit for the, not just extensive, but the historic cooperation that he's given the government. He testified in many trials after the Gotti trial, and he led to convictions of a lot of different gangsters. Let me just ask you to sort of take off your FBI hat for a second here and look at this as a civilian, because there are folks out there who say That's not justice. 19 murders, five years. I know he helped. I know he cooperated. I know he put himself at risk, but that is simply not just. What do you think about that?
0: I understand that argument. I certainly do. And I can understand how somebody could look at that and say, you know, boy, you're making a deal with the devil and you are, you know, you are basically condoning what he did. You know, Sammy had spent four years in jail up to the point of his plea. So after he got convicted, he only had to do an additional year in jail. I think it's important on a couple of levels. And the first thing is, The Gotti case wasn't, you know, that might've been, you know, the, you know, his opus, if you will, but that wasn't the only trial that Sammy was involved in. Sammy testified for a number of years as part of his uh, plea agreement where the government, when he was in jail, would fly him in to testify in a Colombo case or a Bonanno case or a Lucchese case or a Genovese case or another Gambino case or other cases involving corrupted jurors or politicians or whatever. So, The government got their, you know, got their pound of flesh out of him from that perspective. Even when he was released and went into witness protection initially or early on, they continue to bring him back to testify in trials. Now what does that mean? That means that he was responsible, not the only piece, but he was responsible for what we talk about in the organized crime realm, disrupting and dismantling criminal enterprises. So we're lives saved because, yes. Now, this is the last thing I'll say in this, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, because when you talk about murders, you know as a former prosecutor, you can be convicted of murder when you're not the person pulling the trigger or swinging the battle axe. You can lure somebody to a location where you know they're going to be killed. You can dispose of a body you can do a lot of things that you can order the hit which is what happened with Gotti Sammy was involved I believe in one or two actual pull the trigger the rest were his involved in the conspiracy doesn't lessen the impact doesn't make it any less murder but the government did a cost-benefit analysis they looked at it and said would this case have been successful would we have been able to make all the other cases if we didn't give him this type of deal and they did
2: that analysis and, and determined this was the best way forward. It's an interesting question, and, and it's a tough one. And I know that years later when I was trying mob cases, defense lawyers would use the Gravano sentence to cross-examine later cooperators. They would say, you, Michael Di Leonardo, to use an example of a later Gambino guy who flipped. Michael Di Leonardo, you are hoping to get the sweetheart sentence of the century. And he would say – I hope, yeah, I hope to get this, the lowest sentence possible. And they go, and you know about Sammy the Bull. You know that he did 19 murders and get and got five years, right? And they would use that to argue to the jury that cooperators like you are going to get sweetheart deals. And, and that could be effective. I think it doesn't sit right with some people that you get that much of a break. But as you said, Jim, there, there, there's a there's a cost benefit here. Thank you for coming in talking with me today and helping our listeners understand what it's really like to live this kind of life as an FBI agent.
0: Ellie, this was fun. Let's do it again. Anytime. Thank you, Jim. You got it. Thanks, man.
2: Talking to Jimmy, I keep trying to put myself in his shoes. Back in nineteen ninety brand new to the FBI, supervisor pulls him into the room and says, basically, so we've got something for you. Yeah, you're going to be making sure nothing bad happens to the most endangered guy we've ever flipped. You're in charge of Sammy the Bull. And talking to Jimmy about that really got me thinking about my own very first days as a prosecutor. And I remember that every single thing I did, every first, my first court appearance, first guilty plea, first sentencing, was at once terrifying. And thrilling. I had this sense of, I can't believe somebody is trusting me to do this, combined with a sense of, this is what I do now. And that's exactly what makes the job as a prosecutor or as an FBI agent so challenging and so rewarding. On the next episode of Up Against the Mob, We'll talk with journalist, author, and psychologist, Maria Kanakova. She'll help us unpack why we're so fascinated by the mafia and its anti-heroes, and why films like The Godfather and Goodfellas have permeated our culture. That's it for this episode of Up Against the Mob. Thanks again to my guest, Jimmy Gagliano. If you like what you heard, Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners to find the show. And as always, please send us your thoughts or questions to letters lettersatcafe.com. Up Against the Mob is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ellie Honig. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tatashur. Music is by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Matt Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Special thanks to Nate White for his help with research. I'm Ellie Honig and this is Up Against the Mob.